Chapter 5, Cardiology. Topic 9, Valvular Heart Disease. Before beginning, let's review maneuvers that can be done to differentiate heart murmurs. Different maneuvers can modify the intensity of heart murmurs, allowing for a better clinical understanding of the underlying condition. In cases of valvular heart diseases like aortic, mitral, tricuspid, and pulmonic stenosis or regurgitation, certain maneuvers and their hemodynamic responses can affect the intensity of murmurs. For instance, maneuvers such as leg raising and squatting tend to increase venous return and preload, making the murmurs louder. Specifically, squatting also increases afterload, which intensifies the murmur. Conversely, maneuvers like standing and performing the Valsalva maneuver decrease venous return and preload, typically making the murmur softer. Hand grip, by increasing afterload, tends to intensify murmurs, with the exception of aortic stenosis, in which the murmur may become softer. In conditions like hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, HOCM, and mitral valve prolapse, MVP, the reactions to these maneuvers may differ. Typically, these conditions present softer murmurs, with maneuvers like leg raising, squatting, and hand grip, which are known to increase the blood in the heart, and louder murmurs with maneuvers like standing and performing the Valsalva maneuver that decrease the blood in the heart. Let's move to left-sided valvular disease. Left-sided valvular diseases can occur due to various reasons affecting either diastolic or systolic phase of the cardiac cycle and mainly involve the aortic and mitral valves. These diseases can have distinct causes, risk factors, symptoms, and management strategies. Aortic regurgitation is a diastolic valvular disease with risk factors including tertiary syphilis, ankylosing spondylitis, aortic dissection, giant cell arteritis, endocarditis, and trauma. It presents with a diastolic decrescendo murmur at the left lower sternal border and features like water hammer pulse, de Musset's sign, head bobbing, quink sign, nail bed pulsations, Miller's sign, oscillating uvula, and Trauba's sign, systolic diastolic murmur over femoral arteries. Management involves decreasing afterload with vasodilators and surgery in cases of severe symptoms or decreased ejection fraction. Mitral stenosis is also a diastolic disease, chiefly caused by rheumatic heart disease. It is recognized by a rumbling diastolic murmur associated with an opening snap in the fifth intercostal space, midclavicular line. Patients might experience atrial fibrillation, heightened S1 sound, and symptoms related to left atrial dilation such as chest x-ray abnormalities, esophageal compression leading to dysphagia, and recurrent laryngeal nerve compression resulting in hoarseness. Management is primarily medical, with surgery reserved for severe symptomatic cases. Mitral regurgitation is a systolic valvular disease due to hypertension, ischemia, typically from papillary muscle rupture, or mitral valve prolapse. It manifests as a systolic murmur radiating to the axilla, with symptoms ranging from dyspnea and pulmonary edema in acute cases to issues related to left atrial dilation in chronic cases. Management usually involves medical treatment for symptoms with surgical intervention indicated in severe primary mitral regurgitation with specific ejection fraction and end systolic diameter criteria. Mitral valve prolapse, MVP, is characterized by the myxomatous degeneration of the mitral valve, leading to the elongation and redundancy of the chordae tendineae which are the thin cords preventing the valves from prolapsing backward. Most commonly, individuals with MVP remain asymptomatic. However, when present, signs and symptoms include a mid-systolic click murmur audible in the mitral region, 
potentially accompanied by a mitral regurgitation murmur. Some individuals with MVP experience what is known as MVP syndrome, which is characterized by palpitations, a typical chest pain, and panic attacks. Although rare serious complications such as arrhythmias, sudden cardiac death, and transient ischemic attacks or strokes can occur, diagnostic evaluation primarily involves the use of an echocardiogram, which provides detailed imagery of the heart valves and can reveal prolapse of the mitral valve. Regarding management in most cases, no specific treatment or intervention is required unless symptoms are severe or if there are complications, in which case the treatment would be symptomatic and condition-specific, such as managing arrhythmias if they occur. Regular monitoring and a healthy lifestyle are generally recommended to maintain heart health. In some cases, lifestyle modifications or beta blockers can be used. Aortic stenosis, another systolic disease, is typically found in the elderly or earlier in those with a bicuspid aortic valve and is also related to rheumatic heart disease. It produces a crescendo-decrescendo systolic murmur radiating to the carotids and symptoms like syncope, angina, and dyspnea. Pulsus parvus, etardus, and paradoxical splitting are other notable features. Management mostly revolves around surgical valve replacement in the presence of symptoms, decreased valve area, or reduced ejection fraction with transcatheter aortic valve replacement as an option for those unfit for surgery. Moving on to relevant right-sided valvular disease. Right-sided valvular diseases primarily involve the tricuspid and pulmonic valves and can present distinctively based on the specific valve and condition involved. Each condition can be associated with various underlying disorders, identified by unique auscultation findings, and managed differently. Tricuspid regurgitation is often seen in eye-free drug users, those with pulmonary hypertension, systemic carcinoid conditions, which may also lead to tricuspid pulmonic stenosis, and as complications of pacemaker placement. Auscultation reveals a hollow systolic murmur at the left sternal border, typically increasing with deep inspiration. Management primarily focuses on treating the underlying disorders and may involve surgical repair when necessary. Pulmonic stenosis is commonly associated with congenital disorders such as congenital rubella infection, tetralogy of Fallot, and Noonan syndrome, as well as with systemic carcinoid conditions. Its auscultation features include a systolic murmur at the upper left sternal border, which intensifies with deep inspiration, wide splitting S2, and a pulmonic ejection sound. The preferred management strategy for pulmonic stenosis is balloon valvuloplasty. Now we'll shift gears to discuss infectious disorders of the valve starting with prophylaxis. Antibiotic prophylaxis is crucial in valvular heart disease under specific circumstances, primarily when a person with a high-risk valvular lesion is undergoing a high-risk procedure. The purpose of antibiotic prophylaxis is to prevent infective endocarditis in vulnerable individuals during procedures that have the potential to induce bacteremia. High-risk procedures include dental procedures that involve the manipulation of gingival tissue and respiratory tract procedures that necessitate an incision or biopsy of the respiratory mucosa. Also considered high-risk are interventions on the gastrointestinal or genitourinary tract, especially when there is an ongoing infection, and any procedures carried out on infected skin or skin structures. High-risk valvular lesions, on the other hand, involve the presence of prosthetic heart valves or prosthetic materials used for cardiac valve repair. Patients with a previous history of infective endocarditis, unrepaired cyanotic congenital heart disease, 
and those with repaired congenital heart disease but with residual defects also fall under high-risk categories for valvular lesions. It is imperative to administer prophylaxis when both a high-risk procedure and a high-risk valvular lesion are present. Amoxicillin is typically the preferred antibiotic for prophylaxis in such cases. We'll now shift our attention to endocarditis. Endocarditis is a severe condition characterized by the infection and colonization of bacteria or other microbes on the heart valves or devices implanted in the heart. This disease can severely compromise heart function and can be life-threatening if not adequately addressed. Various risk factors contribute to the onset of endocarditis, including pre-existing valvular heart disease, the presence of a prosthetic valve, episodes of bacteremia, intravenous drug abuse predominantly with Staphylococcus aureus, and certain gastrointestinal conditions like colon cancer and inflammatory bowel disease due to organisms like Streptococcus gallolyticus and Clostridium septicum. Moreover, dental cleaning, infections, cavities due to viridin streptococcus, and gastrointestinal genitourinary infections with manipulations due to enterococcus can also precipitate the condition. Clinically, individuals with endocarditis may exhibit symptoms such as fever and malaise and may develop a new heart murmur or experience worsening of a pre-existing one. Establishing a diagnosis primarily involves using Duke's criteria, which include obtaining blood cultures and performing a transthoracic echocardiogram, TTE. If necessary, and particularly when TTE is inconclusive, a transesophageal echocardiogram, TE, may be carried out for further assessment. A diagnosis is definitive using Duke's criteria when there are two major criteria, one major criterion with three minor criteria, or five minor criteria. The major criteria include having positive blood cultures with typical microorganisms for infective endocarditis and evidence of endocardial involvement, which can be an oscillating intracardiac mass on a valve or supporting structures, an abscess, or new partial dehiscence of a prosthetic valve detected via echocardiogram, or the development of new valvular regurgitation. The minor criteria involve having a predisposing heart condition or engaging in injection drug use, having a fever over 38.0 degrees Celsius, 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, displaying vascular phenomena like major arterial embolism or septic pulmonary infarcts, exhibiting immunological phenomena like glomerulonephritis or Osler's nodes, and having microbiological evidence like positive blood cultures that don't meet a major criterion or serological evidence of active infection with an organism consistent with infective endocarditis. Managing endocarditis involves a prolonged course of antibiotics, typically spanning four to six weeks, tailored according to the culture sensitivity of the identified organism. There are specific scenarios where surgical intervention becomes imperative, including cases where there is valve rupture, development of congestive heart failure, occurrence of fungal endocarditis, presence of recurrent embolus, or formation of an abscess. Endocarditis can lead to severe complications like embolism, resulting in the infarct, invasion, or formation of abscesses in end organs like the lungs, brain, spleen, kidneys, bones, and joints. Furthermore, a perivalvular abscess can develop, typically signified by the worsening of a murmur in a patient with pre-existing endocarditis electrocardiogram changes like AV block, and the onset of new fevers. Culture-negative endocarditis refers to a condition where individuals exhibit the clinical features of infective endocarditis, but blood cultures do not reveal the presence of any causative microorganisms. 
It presents a diagnostic challenge, but it is crucial to identify and treat it promptly due to its potentially serious complications. Some microorganisms associated with culture-negative endocarditis are intrinsically difficult to cultivate in standard blood culture media or require prolonged incubation periods. These include Coxiella bernetii, Bartonella species, and the HACEK group of organisms, consisting of Haemophilus species, Actinobacillus actinomycetum comitans, Cardiobacterium hominis, Iconella corridans, and Kingella species.